And <clears throat> crowd dynamics is something we were taught in college a little bit. You know, when people are scattered out, if you tell a joke, they don't like to laugh out if they can only hear themselves. And, and they're scattered when it comes time to sing hymns and all they can hear is themselves, they don't want to sing. So if you get them close together where they can hear each other, then they'll sing out more and they'll laugh and react more. So we were always taught to try to squeeze people together a little more. I think that you'll see that that principle will work when God begins to draw his people together from around the world. It's really hard to be an intimate family when you're scattered from Malaysia to England to here to wherever. And when God draws his faithful remnant together, we can help each other, strengthen each other, and uh, the crowd dynamics will in that sense be in effect. Instead of all over the world, we'll be in one spot and much more able to interact. I notice the stock market has fallen 5% since January started and fell 238 points today. So it's down around 12.8, no, it's below that, down around 12.5 or 6 now it's dropped to. <coughs> Gold went up another about $30 today, around 8.93. Hadn't been long since it just hit 800, and it looks like it's about to crack 900. Should have bought some when it was 250. So anyway, it looks like things are gathering up for real trouble through the economy. Are there any questions of a general nature before we get into a more organized study? Um, I received an article a few days ago that is about a subject I had actually never looked into, though there had always been a frustration level with it. And the church just always did it that way. If you would turn to Matthew 28. I want to go through this subject with you um, because it can represent a fundamental change in one of our most important ceremonies. Matthew 28 and... Uh, Verse 18. Now this is speaking of Yeshua or Emmanuel as we call him now. Uh, he had told them in verse 16 to go to a mountain and when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted. Now this was after he was resurrected of course. Uh, and he came and spoke to them saying in verse 18, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Now I want you to notice what the subject is here. It's him. It's not his father. It's not anything but him. Okay? Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now he said all power is given to him, and then this immediately turns around and says, baptize in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end. 
Now, we are not Trinitarians. We believe in the Father and the Son. And all through the New Testament, uh, that's one of, been one of our arguments about the Trinity, was so many, many times it talks about the Father and the Son, and it leaves out the Holy Spirit. Now, that's been being taught in the church. I remember it from freshman Bible class with Rod Meredith, uh, that it spoke of the Father and the Son. And one of the arguments we made was, well, if the Holy Spirit's a person, why didn't he get excited or feel left out? Because so many passages don't refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet the Catholics would have us believe that the Holy Spirit is a separate entity and can be prayed to uh, just like the Father and the Son. But we also learned then, and that's been over 40 years ago, that First uh, John 5, 7 had been added to the Bible, or had been changed significantly anyway. Uh, let's go back and look at that one. First John 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now that verse simply was not in the original text. It was added by the Catholic Church, uh, by Erasmus. I, I had a note uh, back in the three to 400 A.D. time period. But it's not in the early manuscripts at all. There are not three that bear witness there. There are only two, the Father and the Son. So this is nothing new, right? This is something we've understood from when we first came into the church, whether it was 30, 40, maybe even 50 years ago, that that scripture is spurious. And yet, we have one just like it in Matthew 28:19. that says, Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, those are the only two passages in the New Testament that lump those three together that way. And yet, it has been our custom and our tradition in the church to baptize everybody in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You were baptized that way, and so was I. Uh, now, is that correct? This paper I recently received goes through the history of the early manuscripts and what was and was not there, and then it goes, well, there's actually two articles here that were put together in an email that I received. Uh, and then it puts together internal evidence from the Bible and various things to show whether or not this scripture, as it reads in Matthew 19, is correct or not. Uh, I wanted to do this informally rather than in a sermon as to go through this information with you uh, and get your input and thought on it uh, before, let's say, preaching it in a sermon or something more uh, formal like that that goes out on tape and so on. Uh, there are many, many things that are being considered in the church today, and there's a lot of confusion on doctrine. And we have to sort out from things that are, you know, people are studying again, some people. <laughs> and uh, when they do, sometimes they learn things. Sometimes they put things together in a wrong fashion and come up with error. But 
sometimes they come up with the right thing. Now, I didn't know who had written this first article until I got down to the end of it, and it turns out it was written by an individual named Lon Martin. I met him in Ohio, oh, at his home, probably six, seven years ago. And uh, I think he came to the feast one year. Uh, and then he got involved with somebody down in Texas, and they kind of did their own thing. So I'm familiar with Lon. I've met him. And in fact, he's the first one that mentioned to me that... Uh, the 360-day calendar would have to be restored because of the three and a half years, 1260 days, and 42 months of Revelation and Daniel. Uh, in order to that, for that prophecy to be fulfilled, we simply have to have a 360-day calendar. So God is going to miraculously, miraculously adjust the heavens, just like he did in Hezekiah's day, and the perfect heavenly calendar, which was very good originally, is going to be brought back just as it was in Genesis. So uh, I have a little bit of a track record with Lon. Uh, not that that necessarily means anything, because he's come up with some wrong stuff too. But, you know, you, you take that which is good where you find it. <laughs> and uh, I want us to examine this and see uh, if it is indeed correct and might change uh, how we do something that is a fundamental doctrine, a very basic doctrine. We all have to be baptized. So let's go into this. It's, it's actually about 17 pages, and I doubt I have time to go through all of it in detail, and I certainly don't want to read it all to you uh, uh, until we get down to the Scripture itself. I mean, the Scriptures, uh, the passages from the Bible itself. Those, I think, we should look at individually, each one of them, and be sure. Uh, but a little bit of background here. Uh, this starts out by saying, Constantine wrote Matthew 28:19 into your Bible. What did Matthew actually write? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, or, contrary to the way it's written in Scripture, go you and make disciples of all the nations in my name. Now that is the question. Uh, the question is, does Matthew 19, or did it originally, even mention baptism? And secondarily then, uh, did baptism come in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or Spirit? Uh, it says, this article is based on a publication which was originally written in 1961 entitled, A Collection of the Evidence for and Against the Traditional Wording of the Baptismal Phrase in Matthew 28:19." I had not realized it, but this has been a very, very controversial verse for a mighty long time. He even mentions in here that one man had made a life study of that one verse. I don't recommend anyone do that. I mean, I think there's a lot of things we need to study other than that one verse, and maybe the man did. I don't, you know, I, that's not to say that he studied that one verse exclusively, but at least he spent his entire life off and on, it sounds like, looking at uh, the or origination of what is said there. Uh, the author was a minister, presumably Protestant. He signed his work simply as A. Plowman. He lived in Birmingham, England. Uh, 
the author had not encountered anything dealing with the authenticity of Matthew 28:19 during his 50 years of biblical study, except from out-of-print articles, books, and encyclopedias. Uh, and Lon said that he hadn't considered looking at this until a longtime friend uh, had questioned it and told him he ought to look into it. Um, so the information presented is extremely relevant to our faith. The amount of information supporting the conclusions presented may seem overwhelming, but for the serious seeker of truth, the search is well worth the effort. Uh, it must be remembered, I'm just kind of skipping down, that we have no known manuscripts that are written in the first, second, or even the third centuries. Now there's part of the problem. The Bible writers wrote in the first century A.D., and none of their original manuscripts are available to us, and manuscripts from the first, second, and third centuries are not available to us. So what we have is things that have been passed down and copied, rewritten, and showed up in the fourth century, into the third and into the fourth. And there had been some changes made. Now the Jews were very, very careful in trying to get every jot and tittle correct as the uh, stewards of the Old Testament. But the New Testament uh, has more questions. Uh, the Greeks were not nearly as meticulous as were the Jews. And not only that, the Catholic Church got hold of it. And that could spell trouble. Now, don't get me wrong, I do think that God did cause to be passed down to us the Bible essentially correct, and certainly uh, when you start studying it and tying together the various books and pieces and parts of the Bible, they fit together. And when there's a seeming contradiction, it can often be resolved by studying translation, studying context, and so on, and what areas there are that seem to be out of place can be resolved. And I think that this one can as well. But understand that that gap of 300 years, a lot could be done, a lot could be misused and abused. Um, no single early manuscript is free from textual errors. Some have unique errors. Other manuscripts were copied extensively and have the same errors. So what, we're, what they try to do in this article is examine all that is available and make comparisons to see what was said. It says, considering the fact that all of the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi make no reference to a Trinitarian God, there's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, just the Father and the Son, in some cases, or Melchizedek, or the Lord. And that from Mark to Revelation, we also find no evidence for a trinity. We must consider the possibility that all the existing manuscripts may have one or more errors in common. And there's the biblical historian, Dr. C.R. Gregory, uh, it says the Greek manuscripts, this is a quote from him, 
of the text of the New Testament were often altered by the scribes who put into them the readings which were familiar to them and which they held to be the right readings. Another writer said, a great step forward is taken when we propose to give manuscripts weight, not according to their age, but according to the age of the text which they contain. Uh, let's see. Uh, F.C. Coney Bear, who's a respected biblical uh, critic, Uh, in the only codices which would be even likely to preserve an older reading than those that we have, namely the Sinaitic Syriac in the oldest Latin manuscript, the pages are gone which contained the end of Matthew. So it's not there in the oldest available uh, ones. So then, although or though all early versions contain the traditional triune name in Matthew 2819, the earliest of these versions do not contain the verse at all. And curiously, not due to omission, but due to removal. We don't know why those pages were destroyed, but they're gone. And if you take out the original that might have said had it right, then you can add what you want in later on, which may be what occurred. Let's see. Um, not a single manuscript from the first three centuries remains in existence, but we do have eyewitness observations of at least two men who actually had access to manuscripts dating much earlier than our earliest. So even though the manuscripts weren't available, there were a couple of individuals who lived back then who had apparent access to earlier manuscripts which were subsequently destroyed. Um, so he uses quotations here from Eusebius and uh, the author unknown of a, a work entitled De Raptismate, or The Baptism, from Origen and from various others. Our search through their writings is not to establish doctrine, and I wouldn't, you know, we, we couldn't do that anyway, but to find early witnesses to the verse in question. Eusebius is one of the most prominent. Our first witness will be Eusebius, also known as Eusebius Pamphili, who was born around 270 A.D. and died around 340. He lived in times of rampant doctrinal change, was a Trinitarian, and in later life assisted in the formation of the Nicene Creed. So he helped organize the Catholic Church, helped establish their doctrines, and was a Trinitarian. Now that could be an interesting thing based on what he has to say, because in being honest, he said that the Trinity was not in Matthew 28, even though he himself was a Trinitarian. Now, based on his prejudices, if there was any way to put it in there, he would have been a key candidate to do it, okay? So let's see what Eusebius has to say. Uh, he'd done a great collection of early manuscripts. 
Uh, he was rated the greatest Greek teacher of the church and most learned theologian of his time. Uh, and worked untiringly for the acceptance of the pure word of the New Testament as it came from the apostles. You know, we're going through a lot of stuff here about old guys. Uh, I would find it quite interesting if when we discover, and I think we shall, the ancient and true Jerusalem, that the original manuscripts would be there stored, that God will have preserved them. And when we read those, all these questions will automatically be answered just like that, and you'll know that it is the true answer. But until the original manuscripts are found, either here or under that Jerusalem in the Middle East or wherever they are, and I think God will bring them out through somebody in the church at the right time, wherever they are, you see. Because if all things are to be restored at the end, how can it happen unless you have the original to use to restore? And I don't think that God is going to allow a bunch of Protestant theologians over in the Middle East to discover those. I think it will be his people somewhere, sometime, that do it. Now, that's my own feeling about that. I don't know that I can necessarily... I think I could prove that, too, if I went through a lot of scriptures to show that God is not going to give his vessels into the hands of the unclean. I, Isaiah 52 will prove it. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Now God is not going to entrust the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the tabernacle maybe, the original manuscripts to anyone but his own true people who are living by his ways. So I think that when they do turn up, it will be somewhere uh, by people in the church. I, as a sidelight on that issue, I ran across an article on Steve Quayle yesterday uh, about this new movie that came out on National Treasures. And uh, Ross saw it the other night, and he, and he said there's an awful lot in there that is true according to the ancient records and everything that he's read. And I think there was a black man involved uh, in that. Some of you have seen it, have you not? Uh, was there a black man in there? Or something about a black... I, I, I don't know. Or a black man that was involved? Or a man named Black, maybe it was. I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't seen it. But uh, there's a documentary available from Amazon. I wrote the name down. I didn't bring it. Uh, this family has been trying to trace down the... Uh, lost city of gold and Montezuma's treasures and so on for over 40 years. And they say that they're located in the Four Corners area of the United States, somewhere in Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, or Arizona. So they're closing in. Uh, they've studied and studied and gone through all the records for 40 years. So uh, they're getting fairly close. And this 80-minute documentary about it, uh, Ross wanted to get hold of and see how it compared with some of the things he has found and studied and knows. Uh, but it'd be interesting to watch. Yeah, Gordon? Did he make any mention of the fact that they were studying the computer looking for information 
one of the first names that popped up was Bacon, and then the second name that popped up was Baron. Bacon and LeBaron? Oh, just said Baron. Who was searching the computer? These people? The maiden. Oh, in uh, in the movie. Interesting. They mentioned Francis Bacon and Baron. The two last names. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, Francis Bacon was very, very much involved in early America and in these treasures through the Jesuits and so on. So um, Satan knows exactly where the treasures of God are, the temple vessels and everything. Originally, they've been hidden all these centuries, but Satan knows where they are. And uh, only God could prevent him from showing them to the false religion that's coming. And only God, then, would reveal them to some of his people. Now, if we were involved in that, that should humble us deeply. And it should also make us want to be very clean if we might be considered by God even to bear his vessels. Because I do believe that based on Isaiah 44 and 45, they will turn up at the end time, and that somebody in the world, Osiris, will make them available. Uh, but they will be turned over to God's own people. So, uh, in a sense, it's interesting that those movies are coming out right now. And there's interest being raised in these things on an, you know, an international movie level. And then when God does show them to his people, instead of to the beast power that's arising, uh, we'll have something true because I want us to be part of it, whereas the beast will have only lies and false miracles and so on. And they will hate what God turns up. Anyway, that's, that's aside from this, but uh, it will be nice when... I, I think that is one of the greatest treasures of God would be the original manuscripts written by Moses, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where you could know exactly what they wrote without any translation errors or anything else. And I think that that's necessary for an Elijah at the end to restore all things to have. So I think it will be part of what, uh, what turns up when God reveals where his treasures are. Um, let's see. I was reading here about... Eusebius, where was I when I got sidetracked? Oh, that he was a Trinitarian and lived in a time when doctrines were being formulated by the Catholic Church and Satan. Um, let's see. Well, I was just telling about him. You don't need that. It says he was an impartial historian and had access to the best helps for composing a correct history, which his age, of, his age afforded. Then, uh, 
Here's a quote. The most serious of all the falsifications denounced by Eusebius is without doubt the traditional reading of Matthew 28:19. His source material has been lost, as he later wrote. Through events of war, I've lost all of my files and other materials connected with the magazine. Uh, but according to Coney Bear, Eusebius cites Matthew 28:19 again and again in works written between 300 and 336 in his long commentaries on the Psalms, Isaiah, and so on. In his famous history of the church, uh, found, he, this man found 18, cit this is Coney Bear, found 18 citations of Matthew 28, 19. Uh, Eusebius referred to that verse 18 times in his writing, and always in the following form. Go you and make disciples of all the nations in my name, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Doesn't mention baptism or the Trinity. Um, Uh, Eusebius further said he did not, Christ did not enjoin them to make disciples of all the nations simply and without qualification, but with the essential addition in his name. For so great was the virtue attaching to his appellation that the apostle says, God bestowed on him the name above every name, that all knees should bow to Christ. And that is the context we just read in Matthew 28. You know, it talks, to him was given all power. And then it says, baptize in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't quite fit exactly. So it's clear that uh, Eusebius believed that it was wrong, even though he was himself a Trinitarian. But he was an honest man, apparently. The only time that he used the reading that's in your Bible today was when he was at the uh, Council of Nicaea with the Pope and all the major Catholics there, and he did hedge it, but that was the only time. It might have been worth his head to have said what was the truth. So he did prevaricate a bit, and I, you know most people would, but throughout all his writings otherwise, it always said that it was incorrect to use those three there. Just think about this. How many witnesses does God use? Now, he says two or even three in some cases, but in the Old Testament, anything could be established in the mouth of two, possibly three witnesses. In the New Testament, he's going to have two witnesses at the end. Uh, so why would you have three witnesses to baptism? You know, especially when one of them isn't a person at all. It's just the power of God, basically. As simply put as you can. I'm going to skip on over some of this. I, I, you know, you can read it if you want at some point. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of reading, and it's about these different guys that basically are the same, saying the same thing that the original manuscripts, uh, to the best of their knowledge do not uh, include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there. Now, they give, here's ten tests. 
And I want to go through those, ten tests of whether it should be there or not. And the first is the test of context. I've already mentioned that, but let's see what he says here. When examining the context, we find that today's Trinitarian wording lacks logical syntax. That is, the true understanding of the verse is obscured by a failure of the varying concepts to harmonize. If, however, we read as follows, the whole context fits together and the progressions of the instructions make sense. All power is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples in my name, teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you, I am with you. So, the whole context, as we read up the first few verses, only included Christ. And then his quotation, to fit the context, would only include him, not his Father, not the Holy Ghost. A test of frequency. Is the phrase, in the name of the Father and the Son of the, and the Holy Spirit, used elsewhere in Scripture? Anybody know of a place? It's not in there. You know, if something is frequently used in the Bible, they didn't go through and, and change something that was used, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. Did Christ himself use the phrase, in my name, on other occasions? You might remember a few. Uh, when we read through Matthew 15, 16, and 17, uh, during Passover, uh, does he use in my name there? <coughs> uh, he says the answer is yes, 17 times to be exact. Now, there are examples found in Matthew 18, 20, which is a little bit before this one. Well, it's 10 verses, chapters back. Mark 9, 37, 39, 41. Mark 16, 17. You don't necessarily need to write these all down, but I'll read them off. John 14, 14 and 26. John 15, 16 and 16, 23. There are some examples, but there are seven times that Christ himself said, In my name. Now, Father, the Father had given him all power in heaven and earth. All right, the test of doctrine. Is any doctrine or concept of Scripture based on an understanding of a threefold name or of baptism in the threefold name? Is there any doctrine that is based on that? None whatsoever. Is any statement in Scripture based on the fact of baptism in the name of Jesus or Emmanuel, as we would say? This is clarified in 1 Corinthians 1.13. Is Christ divided, it says? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These words, when carefully analyzed, suggest that believers should be baptized in the name of the one who was crucified for them. The Father, in his unfathomable love, gave us his only Son to die in our stead, he being later raised to incorruptibility. But it is Christ himself who was crucified, and therefore in his name believers must be baptized in water. Baptism is for the specific purpose of being crucified with Christ, isn't it? 
Are we crucified with the Father? Are we crucified with the Holy Spirit? No, he was the only one crucified. And baptism represents a death going down into the watery grave. We've always said that. <coughs> so why were, you, why were you then baptized in the name of the Father who didn't die for you? I mean, he has his part, certainly. I mean, the biggest part, but he's not the one that died. Uh, let's see, the test of analogy. Does any other scripture make reference to baptism in the triune name? No, there's none. Does any other scripture reference baptism in the name of Christ? Yes. The Father baptized the disciples with the gift of the Holy Spirit, a promise that came according to Christ in his name. John 14:26. I'll turn back and look at that one. John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So it be in his name. Uh, this is because Christ is the common denominator, our name, in both water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit, is made apparent by the following scriptures. John 16, 7. 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. <coughs> Acts 18, 12. Or 8, 12, excuse me. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. It mentions the kingdom of God, but it only mentions the name of Christ. Uh, there's a little more there. The test of consequence is number five. When we are baptized, do we put on the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do we put on the name of Christ? If we're baptized in the name of Christ, according to all baptismal accounts recorded in Scripture, we're quite literally being baptized into the name of Christ. An example, Galatians 3.27. For as many as you, of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, if you're baptized into Christ, it says... Doesn't the Father and the Holy Spirit feel left out if they're supposed to be there? Why would it be put that way? <clears throat> Six is the test of practice. Did the disciples ever baptize into the Trinity? You know, you go through the scriptures after Matthew 28. What do you find? Um... Did they baptize in the name of Jesus? Always. Uses. What's, what's one that we always use in a baptism counseling? Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So Peter apparently understood you were to be baptized in the name of Christ only. He didn't include the other two then at all. It says, repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. Uh, Acts 8, verse 16. For as yet he was fallen upon, the Holy Spirit was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they've had the baptism of, of uh, John, but not of Christ. And when they were baptized in Christ's name, in his name only, at the laying on of hands, they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, verse 48. This is an inference here, uh, more than a direct statement. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Not the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but only in the name of the Lord. Uh, chapter 19, verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, if Matthew 28, 19 were included the, the Trinity, wouldn't you think? See, he gave them that direct instruction. He told them what to do, specifically, Matthew 28, 19. Now, he had mentioned baptism, and he had mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and told them to baptize in that. Don't you think they'd have been done it? I think they would have. But we read in all these scriptures and Acts that say they just baptized in the name of Christ. I think there are a few more, but let's go on. Seven, the test of significance. What significance is mentioned in Scripture for baptizing believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's not mentioned, is it? It's not in there. So it can't be significant. If that were a significant thing, you'd think it would be through Scriptures, but it's not, just in Matthew 28, 19. Uh, what significance is conveyed toward being baptized in the name of of Christ. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be baptized, there should be some significance to it. It should mean something. It should have meaning, right? That's what this point is about. So, Scripture teaches us that baptized, baptism in the name of Emmanuel is an act of repentance leading to the forgiveness of sin. Acts 2.38 says, be repent and be baptized, your sins will be forgiven in the name of Christ. Second, baptism in his name alone is associated with the promise of God's Spirit. There again, Acts 2.38 and chapter, and chapter 19, 1 through 5. Uh, did we read that? Matthew 19, 1 through 5. Uh, let's see. Verse 2, he said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Well, they'd not been baptized into it. They hadn't even heard of it. And then it goes on down to what we read about being baptized in Christ's name. A third, baptism in the name of Christ is compared to our personal willingness to be living sacrifices or even die with him. Romans 6, 1 through 4, and Colossians 2, 12. Uh, fourth, 
being baptized into Christ is how we put on Christ. Uh, I'm not expecting you to write all this down. If anybody wants to see this article and read it, you can later on. Uh, we can make some copies if you want. Uh, but it says being baptized into Christ is how we put him on, Galatians 3.27. <coughs> Let me go back and read that. Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So that's significant. If you're baptized in his name, you put him on. Who, who are we supposed to be like? Who's our model? We're supposed to walk as he walked, think as he thought, and to bring every, sub, every thought into the subjection of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No. Bring every thought into the subjection of Christ. <clears throat> the fifth baptism in his name is called the circumcision of Christ and reflects our putting off of the man of sin, therefore becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's Colossians 2, verse 11. In whom, speaking of Christ, also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and in putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen <clears throat> with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So we're baptized with him, through him, and in him, not in the Father. Second Corinthians 5.17 is another one on that. Uh, let's see. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So we become a new creation, a new creature through him, not through the Trinity. I mean, this reflects our thinking all along anyway, doesn't it? We, we've never been Trinitarian. But we were baptized into the Trinity. Whether we believed in it or not. That's why it always bothered me. I, you know, I, I never really focused on it, but I got every time over the years that I baptized somebody and I would come to that point where we would say, I'll now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins. Every time that I can think of, it always bothered me. Now, if something bothers you, it needs to be looked into, you know, because I didn't believe in the Trinity. So it, it always smacked of Trinitarianism to me. That's why it bothered me. <clears throat> and I understood that, but I thought, well, it's in the Bible. That's the way the church does it, so that's the way I did it. It's the way Rod Meredith baptized me in a pool some 45 years ago, whatever it was. <clears throat> Trinitarian baptism can only express faith in the Catholic theology itself. True. All right, the eighth is the test of parallel accounts. Uh, Matthew 28 is not the sole record in the Gospels of the Great Commission of the Church. Uh, Luke also recorded this event in great detail. 
in Luke 24, 46 through 47. Uh, if you go back there, Luke 24. Now remember, Luke even said at the beginning of this book that he talked to everybody, and his purpose in writing Luke, even though he was not an eyewitness, was to set the record straight to be ever sure everything was correct. Uh, 24, uh, verse 46. Speaking of Christ, he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So in Luke's account, it does not uh, preach baptism specifically, and it doesn't mention the Trinity at all. Repentance and remission of sins. Of course, we see in Acts 2.38 that baptism through baptism is how the remission of sin came. So it's implied here, though it's not mentioned specifically by Luke, but preaching his name among all nations. Uh, this passage alone, in contradiction to the falsified text in Matthew 28, establishes the correct wording of Matthew 28:19, where Christ spoke in the first person, in my name. Uh, Mark also records another version of the so-called Great Commission using some of the same patterns of speech. Let's see what Mark said in Mark 16. Uh, verse 15. And he said to them, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, not in the name of the Trinity, uh, and so on. And when he went back to heaven, it says, verse 20, they went forth and preached everywhere the eternal work of the Lord working with them, confirming with signs following. Not the Father and the Holy Ghost, but Christ himself. Uh, let's see. says here that, uh, of course, it is not baptism that in my name refers to here in Mark, but rather the works that the disciples would do. Yet compared to Matthew, the similarity is striking, for neither is baptism explicitly mentioned there, but that disciples should be made in my name. Uh, the test of complementary citation, verse 9. In other words, somebody quotes it later on, cites it, and it's, is it similar? Uh, you know, and often Paul quoted from Isaiah, he quoted from the Psalms, he quoted from here and there and wrote it in the New Testament, okay? And it would be very similar, <clears throat> what was written. <clears throat> so here he compares two scriptures. These are Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Romans 1, 4 through 5. Uh, and it says, consider the following similarities. He's got a list of them here. Matthew 28 and Romans 1, 4 through 5, and shows... Uh, first, all power is given to me. Romans 1 says the Son of God with power. 
power given to the Son, to, to Him. Uh, Matthew 28 says, Go you. Romans 1 says they received the apostleship, so a commission was given there. Uh, another phrase from Matthew 28, teaching them to observe. And in Romans 1 it says, for obedience to the faith. Well, teaching to observe the things he said and obedience to the faith that he gave are very similar statements. Uh, Matthew 28 says all nations. Romans 1, 1 says all nations. Matthew 28 says, in my name, and Romans 1 says, for his name. So they're very complementary. They're, they're almost the same, saying the same thing, same people involved. All right, the tenth test, then, is the test of principle. It is written, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3:17. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of Emmanuel. Okay, does baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost fit that? No. Whether we baptize, whether we marry, whether we bury, whatever we do, do it all in the name of Christ. It is only through Christ that we have access to the Father in the first place. We pray to the Father through. How? Through Christ. We don't pray to him through the Holy Ghost. We pray to him through Christ. That is the name whereby we do all that we do. Um... In this principle laid down by Paul, the implication is clear. The whatsoever includes everything. I've already said that, including baptism. Uh, Paul not only expressed this principle, but he applied it specifically to the topic of baptism. In Acts 19, 1 through 6, there's an account concerning the disciples of John who have been baptized under his ministry. Like baptism in Jesus' name, John's baptism was one of repentance for the remission of sins. And that's listed in Mark 1.4 and Acts 2.38. John's message, which accompanied his baptism, was that one would come after him who would take away the sins of the world and baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's the way John put it. But, you know, I'll baptize you, but he's coming, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Paul introduced these disciples to that one and applied the above principle and rebaptized them. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, or as we would say, Emmanuel. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. <clears throat> so we find strong support for the phrase, in Christ's name, not in the Trinity. And then the question will come up, should we then be rebaptized? Because uh, they were baptized to John's baptism, but Paul rebaptized them in the name of Christ alone. Now that question then would bring up other questions. <laughs> and they could be very... Uh, 
hard questions in a way. Well, does that mean my conversion isn't so? I mean, I've been living without God's Spirit all this time. You know, you begin to question those things. And I don't, I don't think for a moment that Worldwide Church of God and people who lived and died and obeyed God in the church were unconverted. And I do believe they did by, receive God's Spirit. I believe Herbert Armstrong had God's Spirit, and I'm sure he was baptized into the Trinity just like all of us were. Uh, the question then is not uh, whether we were converted. The question is, should we do it right? You know, that, you know, if we were baptized into the Trinity, should we do it again and do it in the name of Christ? And as we understand today, maybe in the name of Emmanuel, if we were to do it, instead of to Jesus, we could use the Yeshua or Yahshua or however it was used. <clears throat> but we came to see that people in the end time, and it could have been referring to no one else but us, the last generation, said, so you will call his name Yeshua or Jesus, to use the common one, but they will call him Emmanuel. And I got to thinking about that the other day, and I could have only been referring to the last generation. Because the last generation is the one to whom he will come. You know, Christ with us, or Emmanuel, God with us. So it's to the last generation of people that Christ is coming. And they would be the ones to use the name that God laid down in Isaiah as the name of his son to come, and in Matthew 1, it said, you call him Yeshua or Joshua, they will call him Emmanuel. And I think, as I said in the sermon going into that, that it's very clear that the false Christ will come using the name Jesus. I, that's the only name he could possibly use and deceive the whole world. So we have an alternate that God gave us in Matthew 1 so that we can tell by name, the difference between their false Jesus, the Antichrist, and the true Christ, whose valid name is also Emmanuel, or God, with us. So if I were to be rebaptized, I would want it to be in the name of Emmanuel, God, with us. Um... Uh, Let's see. <clears throat> Here's a quote from Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, Article Baptism. The cumulative evidence of these three lines of criticism is thus distinctly against the view that Matthew 28:19 in the traditional form represents the exact words of Christ saying that it didn't. Uh, here's Peake's Bible commentary. The command to baptize in the threefold name is a late doctrinal expansion. Instead of the words, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the, the Trinity, we should probably read simply, into my name. That's Peake's Bible commentary. Uh, there's several others. We quote the same thing. 
and say that it was not there in the originals and does not fit the rest of the Bible. Let's see. Talks about Eusebius some more. I think I've read enough of that. We've been here a little over an hour, so let's skip on down. Here's a question, and it addresses that which I just mentioned. <clears throat> Should you be rebaptized? Here are his comments. And I'm not saying here tonight that we ought to be. I'm raising a question. I want you to think about it, study it through, read this if you want to, the whole thing, and see what you think. Now here's his take on it. After restoring the text of Matthew 28 to its original form, that is, go you therefore and make disciples of all the nations in my name, the following question naturally arises. I was baptized in the Trinity. Since this is not biblical, should I be rebaptized? Rather than answer according to our own wisdom or bias, let us find the answer to this important question in the Word of God itself, for that alone is the true standard against which to measure our experience with Christ. Turning to Acts, he says, we find the, Acts, the answer. Uh, well, we've already actually covered this. I'll read it, though, Acts 19, 1-6, if you want to follow along. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Now John was a representative of God, wasn't he? John the Baptist. No more righteous man, Christ said, on earth. into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, and we were baptized, we were, we repented, uh, we, you know, the minister went through those scriptures in Acts 2 with us, and so on. Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. <coughs> he says, by reading the above narrative, it is easy to discover the answer to our question. Paul found disciples who, like most of us today, had heard the message of the kingdom of God and had responded to that message by being baptized following a repentance. <clears throat> However, in this situation, these disciples had yet to hear the full gospel message, namely that Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection had purchased salvation for all mankind by becoming the Lamb of God that John had preached about. Because of this, their baptism under the ministry and the authority of John, who preceded Christ, did not reflect an association with the death and burial of Christ that made baptism in his name effective. Now, I, I don't know that that fully applies, though, because <clears throat> we did understand that part that Christ had died for us and so on, and he, uh, in his death, did give us remission of sin. 
the disciples of John had not heard that part. He makes a valid point there. But when we were baptized, we did hear it. Gordon? Yeah, we also knew there wasn't a trinity. Yeah, I think most of us, before we were ever baptized, it had been explained that there was no Trinity, didn't we? I, I certainly knew that. It was just the Father and the Son. But then we were baptized into the Trinity. <clears throat> it just doesn't fit. <clears throat> uh, he says, while we responded to the complete gospel message, they affirmed their belief by baptism that only associated, that only associated them with a doctrinal creed rather than the atoning blood of Christ that is only appropriated through his name. Well, I can see why Paul would baptize them and then the, by laying on the hands have the Holy Spirit. John hadn't done that. Acts 4.12, he quotes again, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but Christ. So he goes on to conclude that baptism should only be administered in the name of Christ. Well, I think that that's the example all through Acts, and that's certainly what the disciples or the apostles understood. Acts 4.12. Least is quoted here. Now here, following this, is several pages um, that go through this, these scriptures again that we've already read, and it kind of summarizes. There's, there's some more interesting points in here, but I've done so much reading already that I hate to keep reading this to you. quotes from different men about the things we've just read, you know, that baptism is only in the name of Christ, and so on. So I don't think I'll go through this tonight. If any of you want to go through the whole thing, we can make the article available to you, and you can, can study it out, give it more thought. But I, I have no doubt, after having read this, that we shouldn't have been baptized into the Trinity. <laughs> That's it's always bothered me. And these scriptures seem to bear that out, and even history shows that it apparently was spurious. Let me add, uh, go ahead, Gordon. So far I haven't been able to find anything other than what seems to be the scriptural contradiction Can you hear him back there? He's saying that it was awkward. At the very least, it's awkward based on what we understand to baptize in the Trinity. And the use of it for some of them uncomfortable. 
There are such things in the Bible. Why don't you turn back? I can hear you. There, there are other locations in the Bible where there's similar difficulties. And looking up the name, now you gave me a hint of what you're going to talk about tonight, so I was trying to go through some scriptures that seem to substantiate this. Uh, uh, but another phraseology, theology that's used in connection with Christ talks about Him and God and the Father. Well, why does it speak of Him and God and the Father? You know, is it reiterating itself? Is, is it is it that there's a perspective of God as God's family and then the Father? You know, is, that's also true. I I don't have an explanation. So the only thing the only thing that's been spoken in the past that I understand is just like in John 17, 17, quite clearly, it says the Father and I are one, the Father's in me, that in that perspective being one, well then the Father, Christ, and the very power that they use are all one. And so it's a very awkward rendering, but that's about as close to the perfect it gets, in my understanding, uh, is why all three would be mentioned. Yeah, and, and that's... That's reading in, I think, something. They are one, certainly, and Christ was trying to show that, I mean, we know that the Father and the Son are separate beings. That the Father was still alive when Christ was dead. So we know they're separate beings. Well, how can they be one? Well, they're one in mind, they're one in thought, they're one in, in purpose, they're one in uh, they're total agreement. They're in unison, or one in that sense. But that doesn't make them merge. Just like Christ says in a marriage, the husband and wife become one. But she goes to the store and he's still there. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're one flesh, yes, but they're still separate beings. Uh, but they're one together. So I think we have to understand what Christ was saying on that basis. And I don't think it's saying that since the Father and the Son uh, and their spirit, their attitude, the power that they have are together, that, it, that there's three beings, because we can prove in the Scripture there's not three beings, and therefore the, the three can't be like three in one oil, uh, you know, and it's kind of a, like the Protestants say. Alex, you had a comment. Right. Good point. Well, we understand certain things that sort of eradicates or puts away. It's not the major focus in uh, Trinity. We understand for what it is. Right. And that's why it's all the more in our lives we're able to, uh, well, put forth what is the Jesus Christ is the. Yeah, Passover is all about Christ, right, he did for right. us and His resurrection, and, uh, and we're buried. Well, we read the scripture there. We're buried with Him in baptism. We die with Him. Uh, we don't die with the Father. He didn't die for us. Holy Spirit didn't die for us. Christ did. So we're baptized with Him. 
I think all the scriptures are very, very clear on that. You're saying we have ten minutes on a tape, is that what you're saying? Or you just hold up your hands? Hallelujah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, 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 what, what's that? Okay. Giving us the Holy Spirit. Did Christ honor our baptism by giving us His Holy Spirit? Yes. I think He did. Uh, I, I don't think we've lived all these years without His Spirit. I think it's one of those things where He may have have allowed that to happen, even though we didn't understand properly. Like you know, sometimes He allows for ignorance, uh, and we were ignorant of this. Like we never kept Passover holy. Right, right. I, I think he, he honored Passover to a certain point, and he honored Pentecost to a certain point. Right. We kept it on Monday wrongfully all those years, and yet it was still God's church. But we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So he, didn't, he knew we didn't know everything. Herbert Armstrong didn't know everything in the early years. And Mr. Armstrong changed a lot of things as time went on uh, and got them right. And we have to continue in the spirit and attitude that Herbert Armstrong had. Uh, so that we, If we find things in the scripture like this that seem to me to be clearly wrong, we need to quit doing it that way and do it the way the Bible says. Okay, yeah. We, but that doesn't mean that it disallows or makes all of us heathen suddenly and that our baptism was not valid. Uh, that, again, leads back to the question, should we be baptized in the name of Christ only uh, and, and do it right, or should we just say, I hope you accept this? Okay, would, would he take his Holy Spirit away if we didn't? Well, that's another question. I don't always know what God will do. Uh, let me give you one example, and I don't know whether this is valid or not, uh, this was brought to me about, well, it was on my last trip, not to Texas, but to Ohio. On the way back, I stopped in uh, Indiana and met a couple of guys that you've met. Uh, the two fellows that brought us the idea that Emmanuel was a valid name and should be used. I met with them one evening there on the way back, and they had kept the feast, with uh, a couple down in South Carolina. They kept it at a different time than we did. Well, that's a different subject. But they had not, I don't think they'd seen this paper, but they had been studying and realized that Matthew 28, uh, well, they wouldn't want to do anything. They think that the name Jesus is wrong, period, that it is Antichrist. And I don't subscribe to that because it's very clear in Matthew 1 that a correct rendering of, of the name is in the text. It wasn't Jesus. That didn't show up until, what, 15, 1600 when Jesus was first used. Up to that time, it had always been Joshua or Yeshua or however somebody translated it from the Old Testament. Uh, so... Uh, the term in English that we use today did not exist until the 16th century. Nobody used it. And it was put into this Bible uh, in that form. So that term 
maybe shouldn't be translated. If we were to use his name as mentioned in Matthew 1, maybe we should use Joshua or Yeshua. Uh, the Yeshua the being more Hebrew, Joshua being an English adaptation, but the same name, meaning God is salvation, instead of the shortened form that they came to use as Jesus. So the, they might have a point there that if we do use it, we ought to say at least Joshua. If, but there's so much confusion there, and Emmanuel, it said, would be used at the end, uh, why not just use that instead? Because we know that's valid, and it's the same in Hebrew, Greek, English. Emmanuel is the same. You don't have to translate it. You don't have to change it. You don't have to figure out what the original was because it's the same in all those languages and more. So we've already been through that information. Uh, but these guys didn't want to use any form of Jesus. So they use Emmanuel exclusively. <clears throat> so they decided that they should be baptized in the name of Emmanuel. Uh, and they'd been baptized before, Trinitarianly, as we have. Now, they were baptized in the name of Emmanuel, and so was this couple that they were with. Well, the lady had been deaf, almost totally deaf from birth, totally in one ear and almost deaf in the other. After she was named, baptized in the name of Emmanuel, these two fellows said her hearing was totally healed. And uh, one of them, the guys themselves, I can't even say their names right now, um, Zeke, uh, yeah, Curtis and Zeke, but Zeke was suffering with diabetes and he said after he was baptized in the name of Emmanuel, his diabetes went away. He now is normal. His blood sugar is normal, and he eats whatever he wishes and has no problems with diabetes anymore. So he said these two things occurred right after they were baptized in the name of Emmanuel. I don't know whether they anointed for healing or what afterward or whether just after they were baptized, these two problems went away. Now, that was their testimony, and I, and I questioned them carefully on it back on that trip. Alex, you have a comment there? Yahshua, uh, there was in the past some 15 or 20 years ago, that name was used by a certain group of people, and they fell by the side. They were over unbalanced and went to, uh, again, it comes down to, by the fruits, you shall know them. They're nowhere around no more. The, by, by using Yashua? that Yahshua, right. Or Yashua. There were, oh, there are all kinds of sacred name people that use Yahshua right, right. all over the place. And name of Emmanuel, that is used by certain individuals, even the Protestants, from time to time. But they might not even realize for what it is. Oh, only occasionally, and if you ask them what his name is, some of them will say, well, it's Emmanuel, but then they won't use it. So, yeah, it's not that it has never been heard of before. That's certainly, I mean, it's in Isaiah. It's clearly there. And it's in Matthew 1 that it would be used later on down the road. So that I think we've established. I, I don't know why I bring this up. It's just that it, it came up several weeks ago. And then this comes up as well. And I had considered that since I talked to them. Would that be something that... Uh, we might consider being rebaptized in the name. This says 
of Christ himself only in his name. <clears throat> and then the natural question comes up, if we were, were to do it, would we do it in the name of Emmanuel? And I certainly think that that's, if we decided to do that, that that's where I would want to go. <clears throat> because I, I think God with us is a more explicit name for us, a more specific name than just God is salvation, which is what the original Yeshua or Joshua meant. What Joshua in the Old Testament meant, God is salvation, however you pronounce it. And Emmanuel means God with us. Yes, he is, he is salvation, but I also want him with us. <laughs> Uh, not just in general terms of salvation for the world ultimately, but God with us now. And he says he will be with us at the end. Bring his face back to us so many places. So I don't know that I have all the answers to that. I've been mulling it ever since I talked to those guys. And then this came up to show that the Trinity approach is certainly wrong. Uh, but there again, I don't think our, our conversion was invalid. Uh, but if something has been done right or wrong, do you go back and make it right? Or do you just say, God, forgive us for having been baptized into the Trinity and, and give us your spirit anyway? Or, or, you know, or, or would God maybe be holding back a bit and maybe if we did it right, even though he recognized our baptism, he would give us more if we did it right? I don't know. I puzzle over that, too, because I wonder whether it's a matter of the ceremony or the attitude in the relationship. God well, told us if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. Certainly that would include ignorance, I would think. You know, And whether we do it as an individual or whether we would do it, say, at Passover service or whatever, go before God and say, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the fullest of understanding in this. We understood there wasn't a trinity, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I think a whole lot depends upon how much we have faith or belief in our relationship with the Father, you know, and His mercy and willingness to forgive. Yeah, there's, uh, let's take the example of tithing. <clears throat> uh, maybe you were 50 years old when you were baptized, let's say, and you hadn't tithed all those years, and then you started. Well, does God expect you to go back and pay all those tithes from the time you were first earned any money up until the time you're baptized. No, I think he forgives you for not having tithes. He says, do it from now on. Do you go back and keep the Sabbath? Well, it's kind of too late. No, you start when you learn. Uh, I don't know that that's the full answer. I mean, he forgives the past, yes. Uh, but there is the example there. Which, which raises a question on baptism itself specifically, and that is, did Paul say, well, you were baptized by John for the remission of your sins. All I need to do is lay hands on you then. No. He says, you weren't even though you were baptized for the remission of sin, upon repentance, you still need to be baptized in the name of the Lord and have hands laid on you. So, it does raise a valid question there. If we were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, which is a false doctrine, should we be go back and be baptized in the name of Christ or Emmanuel and have the laying on of hands again and ask God to forgive us? Uh, we knew not what we did. Uh, 
I guess I'm saying, do we assume or do we make sure, uh, is a question to consider. Uh, there might be a lot of different facets of this that would be involved. Vicki, you had a question or a comment? Well, I, I just think this example is here in... Don't be afraid of that thing. <laughs> if the example is in here, it was for the end-time church to read, and they, he, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were given after these people were rebaptized. They were prophesying and speaking in tongues or whatever. They, the gifts were given after they were rebaptized. So maybe God's saying that the end time outpouring of God's Spirit in Joel, that Joel talked would be about, connected. would that would be what would start it right there for people. Charles? When it was done wrong the first time, it could be very similar to that. Like I, the second Passover. Yes, sir. I don't think God would frown on anybody in good faith being baptized in the name of Emmanuel only. Well, I, I certainly, I don't think he'd be upset at all if we were to redo. The only question is, would, it, would he be upset if we realized we'd done something wrong and had opportunity to do it right? I mean, you can't go back and re-keep the Sabbath. You can't go back and redo a lot of those things, and maybe I didn't use a valid thought there. I mean, it's, I mean we've got to consider all facets of this. But if there's something that you could go back and get right, should you? And I think that's where Paul was coming from, even though we understood Christ died for us, and we under, you know, it was explained, this is something that we could go back and do and get right. That is a possibility. <clears throat> Some things you simply can't go back and get right. Some things you could go back and get right. So maybe there's a difference there. Uh, the, the tithing thing or the Sabbath thing might not be the principle we go by. It's can we get something right that we didn't do quite right? And would God... I know he wouldn't dishonor it. I mean, what could he say? You were baptized in the Trinity, now you want to be baptized in the name of the Son only? That's what the Scripture says? i got no problem with that, I think he would say. Is it absolutely necessary? I'm not sure. Don't know. Gordon? There were a couple areas of Scripture. There are a couple areas of Scripture that weren't mentioned and they may be in that paper. Uh, I saw a similar paper probably about five years ago. And uh, it wasn't quite as specific as that. But one of them is in Philippians uh, chapter 2. Uh, just as an emphasis on Christ's name and the importance of it, uh, the way God words it in his word, it's even, it sounds as though it's even above his own name. It says, uh, verse 9, Wherefore God hath has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, is the way it's worded, that at the name of Jesus every knee should fall, Emmanuel or Yahshua, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And so it gives quite a bit of import as far as his name is concerned. Um, if we were to redo baptism and so forth, we'd want to approach it, as you've mentioned, with a proper name and with the full understanding, or is as full of understanding as we've been given. The other is in Ephesians. Uh, the question had been raised earlier, I think, by Alex as far as the, uh, the Spirit was involved. 
um, beginning in verse 17, it says, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. We're speaking of the Holy Spirit being given. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The knowledge is given through the Holy Spirit. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him on his own right hand in the heavenly places. It's giving a background explanation, really, of what the baptism uh, and giving of the Holy Spirit is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named is repeated again. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things in the church. And so it emphasizes again his name. Yeah, verse 20 of Ephesians 5, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord. Uh, everything is done in his name. Well, we read that earlier, too, that, that everything we do is to be done in his name, not in any other name. I, I think we could find a lot of verses throughout the New Testament that would support that, that everything is done in Christ's name, not any other name. Uh, but those those are good along that line. I, I, I have no doubt that if I were to baptize somebody tomorrow for the first time that I would not use the Trinitarian anymore. I'd do it in Christ's name only. Uh, I wouldn't use Jesus either. I would, I would use Emmanuel. Uh, I don't think that I would have a problem with using Joshua or Yeshua if, if they we're not convinced that Emmanuel was something we should be using. Uh, but then on the other hand, <clears throat> I doubt if I'd baptize anybody until they understood things pretty much the way we do. I would say go to someone else. And if you believe the way they do, then have them baptize you. Because I don't think we're the only place. Uh, but... So I think that, in my mind, is settled, that there's only one name under heaven wherein we may be saved, and that everything is to be done in his name. The only question that remains in my mind is, should we go back through the process, as Paul did with those who are baptized, not in Christ's name, but in, what name did he use? He just baptized them for the remission of their sins. I guess he didn't, he probably didn't use any name. Yeah. Cleanse the sin, but uh, like the, well, even the blood of bull and goats did not remove sin. Uh, and God was never happy with the blood of bull and goats. So whatever words John the Baptist used did not include Christ's name in his name only, so Paul had them redo it. Do we use that principle here? We were baptized in the name of the Trinity, therefore we ought to do it right. I, yeah, God overlooks things in ignorance, and yet on the other hand, this is one of those things that could be rectified. Some things cannot. If you kill somebody, you can't fix it. You know, If you're baptized in the Trinity, you could fix that. 
doesn't mean that God didn't honor us and work with us in the meantime, but should we go back and do it right? I, I, I'm not going to try to answer that tonight. I think that's something that we should think through. Uh, perhaps do our own personal Bible study on some of these scriptures and pray about it and just see what we come up with and talk about it some more later and, and uh, after we've had time to, to think something through. Uh, and if any of you want a copy of this, uh, it's about 17 pages. Uh, we could run some off. Or uh, Let's see, I have this on email, but my computer went down and I got a different email address. That'd be the easiest thing to do, would be to email it to people. Uh, but I don't have your addresses at this point, <coughs> your email addresses. Rather than taking the time to print it all out, we could just email it, and then you could read it on the computer or print it out yourself. Uh, how many would want to to get the article and, and go through it? There's several that would like that. And there might be some that are not here tonight, especially those who were not here tonight that might want to go through it. Um, well, we could have somebody here make some copies, or you could e email it. I mean, some of you have each other's email addresses, and I don't have them right now. They're on my computer in Colorado being repaired, and I don't even have the computer to do it. Well, I could use Nelson's, I guess. Nelson would have your addresses on his computer. Um... Why don't I email this to Barbara or Shirley or somebody, or, or to Barbara? Might you've got your email set up now, don't you, on that computer? Uh, since I, since you have my computer now, maybe you'd be the one to do this. Uh, I could email this from Nelson to you, and then you could send it to the others, all the addresses you you have. Pardon? Um. Yeah, I've, my my current one is, uh, I haven't given it out, it's just Daryl Henson 1 at Yahoo. I, I, he got me a new one interim until I get my computer fixed and get a new address on it. But uh, let me, I'll go over to Nelson's computer and I'll email this to you and then you have addresses of a lot of people in, the, in our group and you can just email it to the list. That way everybody has it and they can read it if they want to rather than trying to figure out everybody that wants it. Just email it to everybody that you have addressed. I mean, I don't mean out people you know in the world but I, or in other parts of the church, but just to our group. Okay? Let's do it that way, and that way we can get it. Uh, and, and study it carefully. Think about it. Pray about it. And then let's get an idea. Terry? Yeah. Yeah. I. Well, I don't. Let's just think about it and pray about it. I, I don't want to try to to uh, 
speak for anybody here. I mean, you're speaking for yourself there in, 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 in thought. <clears throat> yeah, what we, what we did was clearly wrong, I think, being baptized in the Trinity. Uh, fast day coming up the 18th, consider, oh, you mean to, uh, to, to think about or to talk about it some more? Or, or fast included in our fast and prayer on the 18th. Yeah, that would be a good thing for everybody to do. Get a copy maybe between now and then and uh, go through it. Look at all the scriptures up. Sometimes, I mean, I'm sitting here reading it. Sometimes it's nice to just go to all of them yourself, look at them, think them through in your own time and your own thought process rather than trying to, to get it all just from what I read and skip through a lot. And uh, during our fast, we could pray about it, ask God's direction on it, and then see how we feel. We could talk about it some more. Some might want to. Some might think, hey, what I did was okay. I won't worry about it. And some might want to be rebaptized, and some might not want to be. Uh, you know, we don't have to necessarily do everything in unison unless we come to the same mind, which would be nice. We're supposed to eventually come to the same mind, same thought, and be unified together. Uh, is it possible we could come to consensus on this and everyone would agree one way or the other? <coughs> That's asking a lot. So let's fast and let's read, study it out, fast, pray about it, then talk about it again. Yeah. Go ye therefore into all the world. That won't work anymore, will it? <laughs> but uh, maybe we could change the words a little bit, and the song would still be all right. Or the hymn. Yeah, I haven't thought of that. Okay, well, let's uh, be dismissed then, and we'll consider this again a little further down the line. After the past.